Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Every year, the Specialty Coffee Association hosts a program called Sensory Summit. It's this conference where coffee folks come together and explore wild ideas about why things taste the way they do. I went one year, back when I was the online editor for Barista Magazine, and tasted some of the most bizarre and wonderful things I've ever had. For this year's conference, the Specialty Coffee Association, or the SCA, announced that they would give out a certain number of scholarships for Sensory Summit, so a handful of folks could attend the virtual event for free. And instead of having folks apply for the program, entrants were entered in a lottery, and scholarships were doled out randomly. I wanted to learn more not just about this idea, but about the person behind it. And that's Monsi Chassi. She's the Regional Community Director for the SCA and has been with the SCA since it was known as the SCAA, back before the American chapter merged with its European counterpart. In this episode, we talk about building community within coffee's biggest trade organization. Monsi started at the SCA with no coffee experience but she was determined to learn more about what exactly coffee people needed. And she did exactly that. One of the very first things she did when she joined the SCA was to sit down with members and ask, what do you need from us? What do you need from a trade organization? She continues to ask these questions, heralding in new scholarship programs and sitting on the board of the International Women's Coffee Alliance, or the IWCA. And she continues to ask questions, making sure that she's listening to the communities that she's working for. I recorded this episode a few days before my conversation with Chris McGauley of Get You Some Gear, and in a way, they both talk about really similar themes. Both Chris and Monsi hit on themes of reciprocity and need, That's one of the reasons Monsi pushed to eliminate the application process for Sensory Summit scholarships, and both are good at listening to the needs of those around them. As Monsi points out, community development doesn't mean much if the change isn't driven by and for the communities that you're serving. And what makes so many of the initiatives that Monsi has launched so impactful, like the work she's done with the LEAD scholarships, which gives five coffee professionals two years worth of mentoring and paid professional development, what makes that so successful is that she's always ready to adapt the needs of others. Just a quick note before you listen to this episode, we had a few issues with recording, so there are some parts that sound a little shuffly. Uh, You'll know what I mean when you hear it. We record this episode entirely on our phones, but we cleaned up most of the weird sounds, but there were a few that we couldn't quite get out. Just a heads up if you hear anything funny. Here's Monsi. All right, so let's start, Monsi, by having you introduce yourself. Monsi Choksi. Um... I am based out of Southern California. I was born and raised here. Uh, daughter of immigrant um, immigrants. My, both my parents came from India. Um, 
my dad kind of came here early on, um, did his college and then went back and did the arranged marriage. Both my grandfathers knew each other and that's how both my parents met, um, came here and raised my, you know, had me and my brother. Um, and I find myself back in the same city where I grew up. Um, now my husband and I have a daughter and she is going to the same elementary school that I did, which is so bizarre and also amazing at the same time. <laughs> um, it's all full circle. Yeah. And I, I love it. Like, you know, my parents are close by, so I have um, a support system, but we still have our separate homes. I feel like that's a little bit of, um, you know, I was, I grew up in a very Indian household because of my parents having immigrated from India. Um, but at the same time, I grew up here and took on some of the American culture and values. So I, I think it's kind of interesting that I'm here in the same city, but it's also makes sense because I, I grew up in that type of environment where we all lived together. I had several relatives that came from India at certain points. So it felt like my house was always busy and full of family members. And I, I, I absolutely value that. I love that. And I want to keep it going. So my daughter experiences that same type of family feeling. Um, That's really cool. I feel like, you know, I, I feel like I come to this movie a lot just because I think it mimics the story of a lot of immigrant families. But I'm imagining that very last scene in my big fat Greek wedding when she's like, oh, look, I'm in my own house, but it's right next door to her parents' house. Exactly. And while the cultures are different, it, it's very much a similar story. That Actually, that movie was like playing on something that I just watched. And I was like, this is like one of those movies that I love because I finally like understood like, oh my God, there's other people like me <laughs> that come from my type of culture. Um, so yeah, I fond memories of my big fat Greek wedding. I even watched the like second version of it, even though it wasn't good, just because I felt like, <laughs> oh, this is familiar to me. This is my life right now. <laughs> right, right. No, I know my my mom is is the first generation immigrant. I, I think that that's right. I always get confused because she was born in Cuba, but she was raised in the United States. And I remember watching that movie with her and feeling I felt like I was seen. But at the same, but I feel like she was even more seen. Like I couldn't. I couldn't quantify exactly like how important that was to her to see just an immigrant story being told. Yeah. And then fast forward to today, like I shared this like momentous occasion with my daughter of like, look at the vice president, you know, uh, vice president elect at this point, but still like, it's amazing, you know, like to kind of, I've never ever experienced that, you know, where it's like, this is a reality where immigrant families can actually see themselves in top leadership. That's, you know, you work hard and you like, I, especially like this Asian culture, um, Indians and Chinese, um, I feel like Koreans, like we all kind of have a similar background where our parents, um, because they came from like this long, they fought to get here. Um, they had such a hard time kind of in, integrating themselves into the community. The one thing that they could do for their kids was like, you got to study hard. You got to you know, get into these schools, you got to have a good successful career. Um, 
but never was it like, oh yeah, you should go into politics or you should go into this, you know? And so it's <laughs> cool to see that. And I, I love to see a, a lot of things have changed for me in the last six years since my daughter has been born and seeing things kind of differently, making sure that there's enough of my, you know, Indian heritage and culture being passed on, but also the right type of questioning of like, why do we do this? How are we doing it? Um, for what purpose and making sure that she's kind of getting to see the clear version of what we can show her about what her reality is here. And I love that. That was a momentous occasion for a lot of people with daughters, I think. I know I saw it on your Instagram that you were sharing a lot of just moments between you and your daughter of like, look, the vice president looks like you. This is a big deal. I shared this with my, one of my colleagues, like she was like, yeah, I don't want to be president. And I was like, it's fine. I'm not asking you to be president. But the fact that you have this choice and you can see somebody like you, that's huge. Because I felt like as growing up, I never saw that as an opportunity because it was like only white people can do those type of roles. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of nice to to share that with her. And even like, even if she doesn't realize that she's six, you know, I think the fact that she's getting to see this as she's growing up is a huge thing for just all girls, you know, that are growing up in our country right now. So significant for me. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, it seems like you think a lot about the idea of representation and who's at the table just in your job at the FCA. So I want to step back a little bit and talk about how you got there because, as we were talking about earlier, you have never had a job in coffee before you started working for the SCA. So how did you get, how did you get here? So super interesting. When I was going through college, um, I spent a lot of time in, we had like a very weird major that was called social sciences and you can pick whatever discipline you wanted. And I picked one of the disciplines was community service. And it was what I focused on. Um, and then I graduated and there was this like crazy turn and twist in the economy and you kind of had to take whatever job was available. I think that's like the one crash reality for all people that graduate from college. They're like, oh, I could do what I wanted to do and what I studied. And it's like, no, you got to do whatever is available to you. Um, so I entered this job, um, you know, doing all sorts of random things from I, I learned about like just a corporation, you know, like inside sales, all marketing, um, packaging design. But I was like, I want to do that thing that I studied. I want to work on community development and nonprofit structures. I, I had like my volunteer work when I was in college at the YMCA. So it was really important for me to find some type of nonprofit structure that I could work for. Um, and at that time, I had no idea what associations were. Um, but my friend, my colleague at my work, she started working for SCAA at that time. Um, and she kind of called me over and she's like, hey, this is pretty interesting. I think you'd like it. There's a position open. Maybe you want to apply for it. Um, and I was interviewed by Rick Reinhardt. Um, I think I was the second person he hired or something like that. So it was very early on and when SCAA was I think getting restarted there, there's a lot in the history of SCAA that I don't know if people have time or interest to kind of look into, but there was a big restart that happened in 2008 when I joined. 
And it had to do with new people being hired in. Um, we were kind of coming up from an embezzlement that happened. And so it was a big time. That, that's like a Boss Barista like investigative series I want to <laughs> do. And yeah, it was, you know, when I started at SCAA, I knew nothing about coffee. Um, never worked in a cafe. My experiences were only by purchasing coffee because I went to, you know, school where there was a cafe on campus and that was kind of it, you know, like no idea about the industry, about the different professions that are in it, not even how coffee is grown. So I really did like a deep dive into specialty coffee from day one, um, yeah, it, it's just funny. And I will never forget, like, my first trade show, um, you know, Rick Rick was walking me through the aisles, and I picked up, I went to one of the little stands, and they gave me, like a, a, like, a drink. And I was like, this is amazing. I've never tried this. And it was one of those, like, fruity drinks or something. I was like, this is what specialty coffee is? And he just, like, looked at me and gave me this, like, shaking his head look. And I was just like... Okay, I have a lot to learn. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I can just imagine Rick being like, what? This learning curve might be a little bit steeper than I thought. So your first job with the SCA, because you've you've done a couple of different jobs um, since you started, your first job was as membership manager. And something that I didn't think about that you mentioned before we started recording is that that gave you a really great insight into like who is actually a member of the SCA. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that role and how that helped you sort of see like what community looks like within our industry. So, yeah, I, I started as membership manager, um, you know, moved, moved kind of up the, the chain, if you want to call it that, cause there was only like 10 people at SCA at the time. <laughs> it's like very small crew skeletal, if you want to say that. Um, but moved my way up to membership director and then kind of spent some time there and, Early on, like, you know, I, I, the first event I ever went to was Roasters Guild Retreat. So I got to meet a lot of the Roasters Guild members and that community. Um, that was my first ever specialty coffee event. Um, then you kind of work, if, if you ever, you know, can imagine the life of a staff member, you kind of work all year on this at that time for me, a nebulous expo, like what the heck is an expo, <laughs> you know? And I started at a time that it was, my start date was May. Um, and I remember like the whole year, I, all I heard about was this immense expo and crazy experience that these nine, we were nine people on staff were putting together. Um, and so that was just always like this thing that we were leading up to the biggest event that we did as an association. But in the meantime, my job and my day to day thing was to figure out what benefits members would want, who are our members and um, figure out how to create a community um, amongst the different members that we had. And so one of the first things that I started, you know, researching was who are our members? What do they do? How do they work? And I remember presenting in a staff meeting that I, I wanted to do member visits and we started this concept of like, let's go and visit members and just sit down and talk to them, um, go to their place of work. At, um, and somebody who came from a social science background, this was so right up my alley of like, we're going to do a, a research project and I'm going to find out who are the members. We're going to study them in their, in their habitats. You know, I was about to say, are you writing an ethnography? <laughs> 
<laughs> it was just right up my alley of the type of work. And I, I remember just having such great conversations with people about like, nobody's done this like with us, like nobody sat down and asked us, what do we want? What are we looking for? You know? Um, and I kind of made that just a little bit more of my, like, even if it didn't have anything to do with my role, it just, it ingrained something in me. Like you got to know who you're working with and who that community is that you're trying to serve. Um, serving is one thing, but if you're not able to relate to people or connect with them, then you have a problem. And that's when my relationship with just being a people person kind of blossomed. I think, um, I, I don't have a hard time talking to people, but what I realized was that I I'm able to actually listen to people and hear their stories. And that was really important to my work, but also it's, it's important to my memories of starting at the SCAA. And I still draw on those connections that I made, you know, this was now 10, 11 years ago. (laughs) So I still like remember some of those things. And we made it a part of our, um, just our routine. Whenever we would travel for an event or we were going to a different trade show, we spent a day just doing member visits and going to different areas. And it wasn't just cafes. We went to warehouses, roaster warehouses, um, manufacturers. We went to like different members. We just tried to see who are these people? What do they do? How are they benefiting um, I always found it curious as to who was displaying the member logo versus who wasn't. Um, yeah, it was really, <laughs> really fun times, but it set my foundation for this industry. And I think after a few years of that, I actually felt like, okay, I know this community and enough of them know me where I feel like I belong. Um, whereas before I've definitely felt like I was just doing more of the research ethnographic surveys, <laughs> you know, um, right. But it was good. Yeah, I think you I think you touched on two kind of big things in that answer. Number one, that things that kind of seem obvious, like, of course, we're going to go talk to our members. Of course, we're going to do these visits are not always obvious. So you have the SCA serving as this at the time, SCAA serving as this, you know, industry trade organization but really, what does that mean? And who shapes that? It's really shaped by the people who work for the SCA. So it's interesting to hear you talk about you like stepping into this role of membership manager and being like, what does this actually look like? And how can I shape this based on what I think the industry needs? Um, but two, and I love conversations like this. I love when people can identify what they're good at. Because um, I don't think that that's an inherent skill a lot of people are neither have nor are told. Um, and I think about this a lot. I had a manager at my very first coffee job who would constantly tell me what I was good at. And I was like, this is great. And then I started meeting more people and they're like, oh, I don't know what I'm good at. And I'm like, yeah, it's the first thing you should figure out for yourself. Right. Right. But it's really hard, especially that requires like this level. I think both of these points kind of point to a level of like cognizance that is maybe one step above experiencing the world, but taking a step back and saying, what's actually happening around me and how can I address it? And it seems like you're very good at that. It seems like you're good at kind of taking a situation as a whole and being like, what, what do I bring to the table? What can I specifically do to make this better? 
one other thing I would add to that, I agree with you. And I'm, I am aware of that. The other thing that I know that I have um, is some degree of influence on some of this decision making. Um, And that could be fast forward from when I started to 11 years later, I'm, I'm working at the SCA. And I, I don't take that for granted that I have a level of influence and information that I can share with the community around me, but also make it so that it's, I'm a resource for people. Um, And it's not just like a thing where that I take, like, I'm like, Oh, I'm, that's my skill set. But I absolutely work on that. And I want to be that resource for the community. So it's not something that I feel like I was natural at from the very get-go. Um, I mean, we talked about this earlier in the before we recorded that it took a couple of years, um, maybe actually three or four years before I felt comfortable um, as a part of the community. I didn't think of myself as that. I always felt like it was, I'm serving the community because I work here, but I don't really have I'm not part of them because I never started as a barista. Um, You hear all these stories of people like, oh, yeah, I started as a barista. And I never had that. I jumped into SCAA, (laughs) you know. Um, But I felt like because of my experiences, because of my skill set of like being able to connect with people, I I absolutely worked on that strength of that I wanted to build for myself. and that, that makes me proud that I was able to kind of grow into that position and use that no matter which title I, I held at SCA, SCAA or even SCA. Now, um, I felt like that kind of was the thing that I carried with me. Like I have to be able to connect with the community. I have to be mm-hmm. able to share resources with them. Knowing that, like I agree with you, it is hard. But I think being able to set your expectations for yourself of like, this is what I'm good at. And so whatever I do, I'm going to have to keep this in mind. I want to fast forward a little bit because I think most people who are listening to this probably know you as the person responsible for scholarships. So you're the person who's organizing everyone to take the group photo. You're the person who's making sure that um, all of like the lead scholars or the RICO scholars kind of know what's going on and you're the main point of contact for people. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those programs because those aren't, those aren't new, but they're not, but you were part of them being started. I want to share just a little bit, if it's helpful, like growing up here in the States, you know, I, I definitely felt like, okay, I, I mentioned this earlier, like I wasn't ever like raised to be part of the political structure or like, Hey, leadership, but it was something that I, I had an interest in. Um, but the only way I saw myself getting positions of leadership or, uh, or even getting involved in something, high school, college, you know, you name it, I felt like it had to come through a scholarship lens or some type of um, lens where they were looking for something, somebody of diverse background or, you know, so... I am very familiar with the scholarship territory because I grew up in that. Um, I felt like it was a way that I could get myself represented. It it was a way for me to, uh, you know, growing up in immigrant household, this is one of those things like I I could share with my parents like, oh, yeah, I'm part of 
model United Nations. And because of that, I'm going to go travel to these places. And that made it okay for my parents. <laughs> like, if it was just like, I'm going to go on a trip with my friends mm-hmm. from high school. It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, but if you're going to go do schoolwork and that's fine. debate exactly. global issues, And I got involved fine. with a lot of things um, that taught leadership skills. I, I went to several different programs throughout high school and college. And so that's why this world of scholarships um, and programs that focused on leadership qualities was so important for me to kind of kickstart or be involved in at SCA. So fellows started with my colleague, Peter Giuliano, but it was something that I felt like after the first year, I was like, oh, I like this. I want to be involved in it. And I just you know, kind of volunteered myself to support the initiative. I wasn't on the initial RICO team or anything. In fact, I think I was pregnant the first year that they had RICO. So like, or the first year they had the fellow <laughs> program. So I wasn't even there. But as soon as I came back and I, the next year that we had it in um, 2015, I was involved in it because I, I, I kind of just rose my hand for it because I was like, I'm familiar with this world. I like what it, did to shape me. And I want to be involved in that to shape others in the community, um, to support them. So they see themselves in these positions and they can find the way to, someone mentioned it to me, like, it's like a, uh, you're on the, the carpool lane or the speed track of the, the highway, you know, and you're just able to kind of get from one place to the other quickly because you have the people in the right places telling you do this and do that. This will get you to where you want to go and helping you kind of shape what it is that you want to do. And that was important to me because that helped me in growing up. So that's why I'm passionate about the programs. Um, Fellows was kind of the first one. Then we developed the Lead Scholar Program. That actually came as inspiration from one of the other events I went to for there's believe it or not, an association of all the associations. Um, (laughs) This is great. Yeah, it was great for me. Like I was, you know, looking into that world because I wanted to see what other associations do and how we can bring that to our SCAA world. And I had discovered that they have a leadership program. And the intent was so that people can go into leadership positions, not just in the companies that they work for, but also at the association itself. And so I like looked at them and I was like, we're missing this. We need this. Um, And so it took a few years to kind of get it started, but I'm very happy that we were able to do that. Um, And then most recently, like, you know, we've kind of noticed like through all the different events, there is a, there is an inaccessible, you know, accessibility issue to all of our Um, events. We have to charge for them. So I absolutely understand that. But that doesn't make it so that the right, the people that want to be in the room all get a chance to because there is a price point and that creates a barrier. So when we approach this idea of like, okay, let's try event-based scholarships, we've been trying it out for a long time. But finally, I feel like we got to a space, the most recent one that we did, it was a lottery. And I, I absolutely credit a lot of this development to, I'm interested in it, but I've only been able to progress it recently because of the work the community is doing in this space. Um, 
I, I feel like there's people in the community that have called us in on this information of like, hey, we need to do this. I've gotten some really great feedback from community members that feel comfortable sharing it with me. Like, hey, this wasn't the right way to do this. You, the vetting makes us feel like, yuck, I don't want to be vetted. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm appreciative that people are able to share that with us so that we can grow this together. I've always felt like these programs are only successful if the people we're trying to serve have an opportunity to share their concerns or, you know, comments with us. But it it takes a lot. You know, you have to mm-hmm. also be able to ask for that feedback and then be able to do something with it, which I've been fortunate in the scholarship world. I have been able to mold and shape things. Um, there's other areas that, you know, that I don't I don't feel as comfortable. But this is one area I feel comfortable because I'm passionate about it. I feel like I have the influence for it. And community members have been generous in giving feedback. So that's been nice. I love that you mentioned this holistic approach to these programs because I think it's easy to say, okay, let's start a program. It's aimed at these people. Why aren't these people applying? Or why isn't this working the way that we want to? And then just sort of give up. But instead, but which is true, that happens a lot. And I think it's again going to that second level of I'm going to do a thing, but then stepping backwards and saying, but how is this thing actually working? How do I assess if it's successful or not? Which requires a bit of introspection that isn't always natural. So being able to step back and say, is this actually serving the community that I intended to serve? And if it's not, how do I change things is a really big deal. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the successes from the scholarship programs that you've started. I was wondering if you could share any maybe specific stories of success or moments where you were like, this is working or, or maybe even a story that's like, maybe this is not working. How can I change this and how can I make it better? And maybe, uh, maybe like a practical application of that. So where it's working is, I think, um, I've seen success in this is the lead scholar program. Um, what it is able to do is really get into the hearts of the folks that have applied and got into this moment of being a lead scholar. And what we're doing is going on this journey with them and supporting them throughout it. And what we're noticing is people change their minds about things and that's okay. And we're trying to make that completely fine. Like if you want to start with a green, you know, you want to start with sensory coffee or green coffee but now you're changing your mind and you want to switch to sustainability, that's fine. What it's doing is giving us insight into how the community operates and what things are more relevant and topical. Um, What we didn't expect for it to do was, I I was hoping this would happen, but I didn't know how it was going to happen. But it actually promoted folks to finding the right contacts to get jobs, um, you know, and that's a big deal. Like, I think we don't have a current recipe for how that works, but being able to connect people to the right mentors or coaches or even just industry contacts, um, it is valuable. I know that it's valuable, but how do you create that program? You know, it takes the industry wanting to help each other. Um, and that's not something like we can want that all we want, but 
I need the community to kind of support that effort. And when it came to the Lead Scholar program, we did get a lot of support from the community. Like people, we approached them and they they absolutely said, yes, I'm up to connecting with this person. I'll definitely help them out where I can. Um, our sponsor was amazing in that effort as well and providing leadership and development coaching. Um, so that program, the Lead Scholar program, is so much. It has to do with education. It has to do with community events. It had to do with getting access and presence at RICO. But it wasn't just like, great, you have a ticket. I was actively supporting our Lead Scholars in meeting people, networking in the right with you know, the right people that they, they set their intentions of like, I want to do this. So then I was supporting them and getting connected to those right folks that can help them get there. It was very intentional. Um, it's a lot of work. And I think where, you know, you can kind of say like where it's not working or where it could use some improvement is it's only for five people and it takes two years. And, you know, so how do we how do we make this program even bigger? But I think that that's one of the things that, you know, you mentioned this just a little bit ago, and I value the design thinking process a lot because you have to start small. You have to be able to take things through and then you have to be able to assess, did this actually work or not? Because if it didn't work for everybody, then there are flaws to the program. If it worked for some and didn't work for others, there's reasons to kind of explore. Why did it work for this person? Why did she get a job and she credits the lead scholar program for it? But why did this person not even get to finish their education program through it? You know, the, the same accessibility was offered to both, but the person has a lot to do with their own success in this as well. Right. Um, and then before we have to do this type of assessment before you can scale. And I think that a lot of people want it to kind of expand so quickly and go into like, you should be able to support a hundred people through that. But I think that that's part of the design thinking process that I have used in this environment. Like we got to pilot this, we got to figure it out. We got to make sure it's actually working. Then we can scale it. Um, and it, some of these programs are not going to be ready yet to scale up to that level. Um, so I'm, I, I think it's a success. Yes, I think there's room for improvement. I'll mention one other thing. The process in which we started with vetting, um, you know, we would get people applying for positions. We would look at their applications. It's hard. It's hard to kind of say, like, how would one person, you know, in this random city across the country, um, how would they why is it that they are more deserving of this opportunity than somebody else on, you know, that maybe works for a bigger company, but is feeling like they're unable to access the right resources um, and they need the scholarship so they can get to it. Um, we have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of room for unconscious bias that comes in. Um, so there was a lot in that process. Mm -hmm. And we finally just said, you know what, we're just going to have people apply and we're going to do a random lottery for selection because if they say they need it, they need it. Yeah. You don't want to question the need. Yeah. I felt like I watched a couple of, um, or I listened to a couple of podcasts on this and, um, one of my colleagues actually sent it to me. There's a great one on 
the lottery process and how it works. And I've been really advocating for this um, throughout the organization. Um, we're supporting, we're trying to support this for the next version of the elections for the U.S. chapter, um, but also in this vetting of the scholarship programs. Like, hey, there's no longer a vetting. You just apply and it's a random lottery to say who got it and who didn't. What doesn't change is the fact that there's so many people that want these opportunities. Um, and so the scale question is a reality that I we need to work on. And it's something that I'm very conscious of. I just don't think that the right approach is like, okay, the community wants in, so we should all, we should figure it out like right away. I think we need to step back and take a look at how this works. Or maybe the program design is wrong where so many people are fi finding that it's inaccessible. So there's so much involved in these programs. I don't think right. it's a solution forever, but I'm so happy to get to work on it. And I feel like the folks that go through it are super happy to, or at least I've experienced it. They're happy to give feedback and they've shared stuff. And I've seen them kind of get involved in other things, which is the point. Like we don't, we want this to be something that helps somebody grow into the next part of their career, not just because they needed a free ticket to the next event. Absolutely. That totally makes sense. And I love that you talked about this idea of lotteries because I've, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of selection and does that, can that ever really be done fairly? And the idea of how can I assess someone's need? Like I can't, I can't assess someone's need, especially if they're not given the tools to fully express that need. So there might be something that I don't know. Um, actually like I had this visualization in my head when I was a coffee shop manager of just like throwing a bunch of resumes in the air and just grabbing one being like, that's the person I'm going to hire because how can I, how can I say if you need this job or not? Like I can't assess that need, but, um, that's like a totally different, <laughs> that's another story for a different time. Um, I want to shift a little bit to your work with the IWCA because that's such an important organization. And I think that it often gets overlooked and I want you to talk a little bit about what it is and what are some of the goals for the IWCA? Amazing journey for me. When I started at SCAA, one of the first things I, I'm just used to always volunteering for something. So one of the first things I got, I volunteered for was IWCA and I've been volunteering there ever since. Um, it's an organization that has so much value and immense, you know, like the stakeholders are the chapters of the IWCA and there's a chapter in each country. But what the value that the chapter leaders get, the type of education, the type of leadership development, um, it's right in line with the type of things I enjoy and I'm working on at SCA. So it was, it was absolutely like a the perfect no brainer for me. Yeah. Um, is just a volunteer on a committee and, and, you know, now I'm on the board, I'm the vice president and it's, it's amazing. The journey for me has been fulfilling, but I think the work that we've been able to do is, is way beyond that. Um, and that's what I've been proud of. What, I think people don't know is the IWCA is this global association. I, I assume they don't know because I feel like every time I talk to somebody, they're like, what's IWCA? What do they do? It's the one thing that people struggle to 
uh, kind of keep on mind. They know about the breakfast, they know about things, but this is how I explain IWC to everyone. Um, it's a it's an organization, it's a global organization that focuses on empowering women through leadership. Um, we work on different types of market accessibility skill sets and tools for them. Most of them are chapter members um, through different countries um, that produce coffee, but that doesn't mean that that's the only type of chapter that exists. We have chapters in you know, countries that you would say are more consuming countries than producing countries of coffee. So um, I guess that's a little bit of a myth buster that people think that only people that grow coffee can be involved in an IWC chapter. And that's untrue. Like we have many pe people that have been members and new chapters that have, you know, just been formed that are in countries that don't even produce coffee. Um but going back to what the organization does is it empowers people, uh, women, especially in coffee. And what's really important about that is that it is set by the local community. So this is the one fact that I wasn't aware of when I first started volunteering. But through my volunteer experience, I learned for IWCA that the Global Association of IWCA their role is to serve the chapter leaders. And so what they do is if somebody comes up and says that they want to create a chapter, that's when the globalist organization supports them in creating the chapter and creating that community. But that local organization is the one that decides, hey, we're going to focus on health and women. We're going to focus on, um, you know, marketing tips. We're going to focus on financial stability for the women in coffee that are in our region. They get to decide what it is that they want to focus on. Their organizations are set up to be independent, um, running on their own. The IWC umbrella just connects everybody through the support network, but each of them have very different projects. And that's what's, I think, unique. And that's why maybe people get overwhelmed by oh, there's so much, each chapter does something different. But I find that as the the thing that's cool about the organization. Um, and the reason that I continue to stay involved is because I know that my work is supporting the global umbrella of marketing the IWCA and making sure that those women in different countries know that there's an organization that exists to connect them and empower them. But at the same time, they are the the leaders of their own fate for what happens at that local level. Um, and they have all of the access to what they want to do. And nobody's telling them from a global side, hey, this is what you must do. They they get to decide that for themselves. And that's what I found is most special about, I think, this organization. Because you hear a lot about nonprofits that go in and they say, okay, this is how it should be done. We're going to set up a school. We're going to do it this way. We're going to give you the teachers. And then once they leave, then that school fa falls apart. You know, there's no infrastructure to kind of keep it going because it didn't come from the community itself, where this is built with the community in mind. And they're the ones kind of dictating how it goes, what they want to see, what, what goals they want to set for themselves. And the global group is just there to support all of that getting done. It seems like that's a big theme in a lot of the work that you do 
that it's not it's not about saying, hey, we're going to do this thing. And if it falls flat, well, you know, we said that this is how it's going to be done. It seems like you focus a lot more specifically on how do I give a community the tools to figure out solutions that work for them? And I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons I think someone can learn from listening to you talk. Cause it seems like it's something you think about a lot. Like how does a group of people come together and actually create something that empowers their community? So just to start to wrap things up a little bit, I was wondering for people who maybe feel disconnected from the coffee community, Maybe they don't see themselves in the SCA or maybe they don't see themselves in a global coffee community. How can they start to really pinpoint their community and start bringing them together? It's hard. Okay. So I, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I, you have to, if you're looking for that community and you want to build it, I think that you have to be willing to put the work in. And this is where, you know, in the type of work that I do, one of the things that happens a lot is people want this ready-made solution for everything. Like, okay, I want this. So I'm expecting somebody else to just have it all ready to go. And that's hardly been the truth of my, like what I've experienced, like nothing is ready to go. If you don't see yourself in something, then you got to build it and you got to create that. And it's going to take work. And what I think is really important is the types of organizations that I've been involved in, the types of projects that I choose to um, work on, all of it has that general theme of like supporting others, you know, finding the right networks, making sure that people can help themselves, but it doesn't have anything to do with the personal gain. And I think that's what sometimes people get that confused. Like, I want this because it's going to help me I think when you focus on it's going to help the community, that's when you start seeing that change happen. And I don't know if everybody is in the right space to do that. And that's okay. If you just need something that helps you, that's fine. But we also can't keep expecting somebody else to do that work if you're not willing to get involved, right? Um, so I, I don't know. That would be my advice. If someone's kind of looking for that community, um, before they say, okay, cool, I need to see a community for myself. I'm just going to go and build one because that's a lot of work. Um, and it's not easy. And you can't do it alone. You're going to have to find people that to work with on it. And before you do that, you might as well see, is there a community that connects with some of the things that you want to see uh, or you're already be able to see? And could you just help shape them to get to the next level? A lot of our charitable organizations that are in our industry, um, they need support. And a lot of them are very direct to say they need help with monetary contributions. But if that's not the right way that you can support, I don't think there's any organization that's like, nope, we're not looking for any help uh, with volunteers. <laughs> I've seen all of them say that they're open to volunteers, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And I think before we start creating 100 different organizations for people, what you got to remember when you're trying to look for a community that you belong to, you want a community. You don't want just like three people. This isn't a small exclusive club that you're trying to create, right? You want a, a big community that you can connect to. So that would be my advice. Like, hey, look for things that you want to be involved in. Try to join something, even if it doesn't have all the things that you want that you're 
you know, maybe like feeling doesn't matter because if you get involved and you're able to influence some of those things to go in the way that you want, or maybe you learn something, maybe you learn why your way of thinking on it wasn't the right way for that organization. And that should open up your mind to a lot more different things too. That would, that would be my advice. I love the, I, I, I go back to uh, the idea of what your goal is when you start a community organization, because I think a lot about what does it mean for me to be personally successful and what does it mean for the initiative that I want to participate in to be successful. And it reminded me, um, maybe I'm getting like too introspective, but it reminded me of when I was a teacher and I was like, what's the point in this moment is the point in this moment for me to feel like I taught this well, or is the point for the student to understand what's happening? And those are different sometimes. And that is a very hard mental break to make because you're, you, you ride your success on the success of others. Um, follow. <laughs> I'm getting a little bit weird on this, but it was really hard for me as a teacher to get into the classroom and be like, but I wrote this lesson plan this way. And my idea of success was to deliver it as I had pictured it, as I imagined it. And I think the biggest lesson I learned as a teacher is that I had to adapt because I, my success in that very linear way, the way that I was picturing it does not matter. My success matters when the students are successful. And again, like it's, it's part of like removing that sense of self and sense of ego and really thinking about like what, what is an actual measure of success in this moment? So I think that you really hit the nail on the head thinking about if I'm starting a community organization, what's the actual point here? I love your teacher reference because I don't think I would have been a lot more clear on these types of things like until I had my daughter. Um, (laughs) um, No, that's interesting. Yeah, any sense of planning goes out the window. And planning is bad. I still do a lot to prepare. Um, I, I, I'm a avid believer that you can't just have a meeting to have a meeting. There has to be an agenda. Um, you know, I, I led a lot of different community groups, so I, I value the importance of icebreakers, all of that kind of stuff. But I do know, thank, thankfully, because of my experiences with my daughter, that things don't always go the way that you want it to go. Like, that icebreaker sometimes doesn't break the ice. <laughs> you know, the agenda really doesn't get followed or we go off on a tangent. Um, and it's same for community groups. Like I think just because the recipe had worked in a different community, it's not going to work in every community. And I think that that's the thing that I value most about IWCA is that they support the group and understanding here's here's what happens when you do community development, but you get to decide what those reasons are. How do you want to do it? Um, And even in my work in SCA, that's what I get to focus on is like, you know, lead scholars, for example, they get to, they get to decide, like, this is what I want to focus my education on. And then if they change their mind, that's fine too. Um, And we're going to figure out how to, how to pivot, how to adapt, you know, how to change from that moment that it's so important. Like I think flexibility in anything that you're doing is especially like given this year, gosh, like people that had plans for executing different things in 2020, I'm sure that that's turned upside down for everybody. I don't think there's been one person that's like, oh yeah, I had to imagine this world the way it is this year. Um, 
And so it really gives you insight into like, okay, yeah, you know, we've got, we got to be more adaptable. We got to change things with what it is. And I think it also gives us a little bit of more introspection on like these buzzwords that we're finding in the community. Like, you know, I, I would argue community has been a buzzword. Culture has been a buzzword, right? Like workplace ethics. Um, mm-hmm. There's so many different buzzwords and it's like, it might be relevant to the time, but what's actually happening for those things right now is something I think about. And that's one of those areas that I just would want people to be intentional about what they're doing and what they're saying and what they're working on. I Maybe it might help them to feel more satisfied with their day to day if they felt like they knew exactly what they were trying to get to. Hansi, thank you so much for joining me. This has been such a fun conversation. And I think a lot of people are going to learn a lot about you and the work that you do with the SCA and IWCA. Feel free to have people reach out to me if they feel like they want to learn more. That was Monty Chossi, Regional Community Director for the SCA, board member of the International Women's Coffee Alliance, and overall just a generally amazing person who says that all of you can reach out to her. We'll leave information on how to reach her on our social media. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us. That would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.